Hello, and welcome to the October 18, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my musical bunker with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Lou Jetton of the band Lou Jetton and 61 South. Jetton learned the blues the old-fashioned way in the cotton fields while growing up in the 60s and 70s between Trenton and Dyersburg, Tennessee. Along the way, he had two of the best mentors one could have. In the 80s, the legendary Carl Perkins, and in the 90s, the one and only Chicago blues legend, Snooky Pryor. In 1994, Jetton joined up with Paducah, Kentucky-based blues band 61 South, which featured legendary harp slinger Colonel J.D. Wilkes, drummer Eric Eicholtz, and Fastlane Hendrickson. Upon Hendrickson's departure for New Orleans in 1995, Jetton took over frontman duties, and the band hasn't looked back or slowed down since. <clears throat> Lou Jetton and 61 South are, indeed, the real deal. A multi-pick-to-click on XM Sirius Bluesville, with multiple albums on the blues and blues rock charts. They have cemented their reputation in clubs and festivals, with their signature, critically acclaimed Mississippi River electric blues sound. Eric Eicholtz continues on drums as the only original member of 61 South, joined by Sam Moore on guitar, Dan Bell on guitar and organ, and Otis Walker on bass. Think Gary Clark Jr. meets Towns Van Zant. Maybe the most real blues I've heard in a long time, says Luke Williams of WKYQ. Classic Light. If Johnny Winter went to New Orleans to live for a while and vacation in Chicago, this is what he might sound like. Blues Music Magazine. 
Lou Jettin and 61 South blur the line between straight-ahead blues and southern rock. Thumbs up. Real Blues Magazine. 61 South should be on festival stages all over the United States, showing how real southern blues should sound at its best. Downbeat Magazine. Key to the appeal of Lou Jettin an underappreciated singer and guitarist, is his integration of true intent and heaps of heart. He's comfortable with straight blues, southern blues rock, soul blues, and even blues gospel. Reflections in Blue Jetton is a top-notch guitarist with a voice suited for the blues and an exceptional songwriter. All the technical training in the world cannot teach this stuff. You either have it and understand it, or you don't. And Lou Jettin and 61 South nail it, big time. Lou Jettin and 61 South have appeared at the Juke Joint Festival, Hot August Blues Festival, W.C. Handy Blues Festival, Ozark Blues Festival, Sparta Blues Festival, Riverside Blues Festival, Bear Creek Blues Festival, Missouri Blues, Bikes and Barbecue Festival, Metropolis Blues and Cues Festival, Kentucky Blues Festival, Barbecue on the River, Superman Festival, and many more. It is my pleasure to welcome to my universe, Lou Jetton. Hello, Lou. Hi. It's uh, really great to have the opportunity to talk with you and to uh, have you as a guest on my podcast. I, uh, in, you know, in looking uh, at a map, I would conjecture that Paducah, Kentucky would appear to form a golden triangle of some musical significance with Indianapolis to the northeast and Indianapolis being the headquarters of the Chitlin circuit which for my listeners who might not be familiar, the Chitlin circuit were clubs where African-American musicians could perform during the time when nightclubs, honky-tonks, juke joints, ice houses were racially segregated. And St. Louis to the Northwest. Now, of course, St. Louis is the gateway to the West and inspiration for much music, as well as the birthplaces of people such as Chuck Berry, Clark Terry, and Miles Davis. Now, very often we listeners associate uh, Kentucky with the call to the post at the Kentucky Derby, uh, Louisville Slugger baseball bats, uh, Burgoo, and bluegrass music. In fact, uh, Owensboro, Kentucky is the location of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame and also the location of one of my favorite barbecue joints, the Moonlight Inn which uh, for those of you who are barbecue aficionados is probably unique for its barbecued mutton and a unique sauce they call dip. So Lou, for my listeners who may be unfamiliar, would you talk a bit about the blues scene in Kentucky and the Mid-South? Well, um, I'm originally from West Tennessee and uh, from outside of Memphis. Uh -huh. So I'm more wow. akin to the blues scene uh, in Memphis, North Mississippi, uh, but it does creep up into far western Kentucky as well. 
we have a very good blues festival here. I, I, what I call one of the, the unknown gems of the blues festival circuit in Henderson, Kentucky. It's called the WC Handy Festival. Okay. It's a free festival open to the public. They have great headliners every year. Um, what's funny is, you know, WC Handy moved around a lot. He, um, he, he was in Memphis for a spell and, in fact, wrote the Memphis Blues, uh, which was kind of a variation of a campaign song for Ed Crump when he was running for mayor of Memphis. But then he also spent some time in Alabama uh, around uh, the Huntsville area. So they've got a WC Handy Blues Festival as well. And then he's known for the Memphis Blues, which some people some people said that was the first ever blues song. Um, but actually, W.C. Handy always said that he the first blues song that he ever heard was a group playing at a train station, I believe, somewhere in North Mississippi. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, he moved around a lot and he spent some time in Henderson. So they've got that blues festival there. They've also got a blues festival in, or two in the Louisville area. Louisville's got a pretty good blues scene. They've got a really good blues club called Stevie Ray's and uh, and other places where you can hear a lot of a lot of live blues. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a dedicated blues club around where I live, um, but you know we manage to play at places that have you know a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We do have sure. a blues festival here every year called the Hot August Blues Festival. It is at Ken Lake State Park in Aurora, Kentucky, which is a small state park in a very small city, in a very small county. But um, but they've had that blues festival, which is actually the longest continuously running mus music festival in the state of Kentucky. It's been going now for 30, 33, 34 years, something like that, continuously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I played many, many times. In fact, I was the prom promoter of it for three years. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, still going, it's still going strong. And looking forward to it once again this year. It's always the weekend before Labor Day weekend. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll have to watch for some of those uh, uh, places. I uh, I was just in Kentucky in May, actually on our way down and on our way back from uh, Wisconsin to visit uh, my sister-in-law in Atlanta. We always oh, yeah. travel. We always travel through. Uh, uh, Kentucky, of course, we always stop in Owensboro because that's where the Moonlight Inn is, and I love the Moonlight Inn. And uh, and uh, of course, I discovered uh, uh, one of my trips, of course, about the Bluegrass Hall of Fame and all that. But uh, so there's a musically rich, uh, uh, really, you're in a mu very musically rich area of the country, and uh, it's really really great to hear. Well. I know from listening to your music that your particular personal style certainly transcends that of Delta blues and uh, electric blues. And, and you even get into kind of a Southern rock uh, kind of style, but for the sake of a starting point of discussion is the blues uh, an international style or is it a regional style that is imitated internationally? And what I'm thinking of is about all the various pockets of different blues styles within the United States. Cause you know, we got West Texas blues, we've got Piedmont blues, Delta blues, you know, and all that Northern Mississippi blues. Uh, and as well as there are a number of English blues musicians and blues influenced English rock bands. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's more of a regional 
blue scenes that have become more widespread and more recognized internationally. Um, and the Piedmont is a good example of that. <clears throat> but a lot of it was um, just the, the music that the, the, the African-Americans brought over from Africa, you know, in, in slavery. Because if you go look at, listen to some of the West African stuff, um, you can see the blues roots right there. But then you've got, you do have the Delta blues, which is amazing. And uh, I've been blessed to play in Clarksdale many times, Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, but then you got the North Mississippi Hill Country stuff with uh, R.L. Burnside and um, uh, uh, Junior Kimbrough. And I've been blessed to open shows for both R.L. and uh, Cedric Burnside mm -hmm. over the years. Cool. But, but yeah, it's, and then of course the, <clears throat> the, uh, the British blues scene, I think, was a direct. Um, uh, that came about directly from the Chicago blues scene in the uh, in the forties and the fifties, even you know, with Muddy Waters and mm -hmm. John Lee Hooker and uh, all of those cats, you know, uh, in mm -hmm. particular Waters and Howling Wolf, all, all mm -hmm. of those guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they had brought it up from North Mississippi, from the Delta region, you know. Mm -hmm. when migration uh to the north was to uh, uh get away from the um the you know low wages in the south and move north to the uh, more industrialized areas in detroit and chicago where they could make better living mm -hmm. yeah well there yeah there was a great migration from the south to the north and uh and uh, a lot of the music that came uh, came with it was certainly uh a, a, a great infusion of, uh, well, culture and cultural change, because there was uh, certainly, uh, you know, most of the uh, Delta blues was played on acoustic instruments. And when it came north to overcome the loud, rowdy crowds and bars and so forth, they had to start playing electric. And uh, and the English, speaking to the English, were always really great students of American music, whether it's been jazz or blues or or uh, American rock and roll, and and uh, have actually maybe come back with a, a very loud echo in terms of uh, what they because there has certainly have been some excellent uh, uh, blues musicians who have been uh, English. But uh, yeah, I think I think I asked that question kind of just as rhetorical because it's like with especially with the way media and communication is has been for the last 60, 70 years with the radio and record players and so forth. The transference of different styles of music has really been much easier. And, and maybe the world is flat where that's concerned, you know, because it doesn't matter where you're from or what color your skin is. If you like a particular sound, you are going to uh, fall in love with it, adopt it and play it yourself. But you almost wonder, though, if uh, would blues music be as big in the United States if, uh, you know, Clapton and the Yardbirds and John Mayall and them not taking muddy water and, and, uh, Alan Wolf's music, and then more or less reintroduced it to to America. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And it's sort of like, um, you know, because it's it seems like 
as I recall my history, you know, it was during the 1950s, there was a revival of folk music. And with folk music, then there also seemed to be a revived interest in what people thought was African-American folk music, the blues, right? And uh, uh, for whites began to, it was all brand new stuff, you know. Uh, I don't know. There's a really good book, however, uh, that I think has, offers a really interesting uh, revisionist history, and that's Elijah Wald's book, Leaving the Delta. And uh, and uh, there's more to the title. There's a subtitle, which is escaping me right now. But Elijah Wald has written some fascinating books on American music. He also has a really great book called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. And he traces he traces uh, a history of American music in the 20th century. And uh, both books, I thought, were very enlightening and, and kind of brought that uh, that whole issue, what you're talking about, to a head. But, yeah, you got to think that, you know, without the Stones uh, and the Animals and uh, Eric Clapton, would a white America ever have really gotten enthused about the blues? And that's maybe a, a good question. Perhaps the same way we'd be asked about rock and roll, which was originally a primarily an African-American music. If Elvis Presley hadn't, you know, revealed the fact that he was a white guy and uh, people didn't know until, until it was revealed, uh, you know, where he went to high school, because he could sing like black man. And Sam Phillips knew that and figured, you know, he could see the dollar signs because he knew that white America was starting to get get hip to uh, a lot of black uh, American music. But uh, well. yeah, and also, uh, yeah, also one of the Beatles biggest influences was uh, a, another Southern rockabilly guy, Carl Perkins, who I was mm -hmm. blessed to have when I lived in Jackson, Tennessee for several years. Um, because that, and that's basically what Carl used to say. He'd say, you know, I took this, he was, he grew up a poor, uh, sharecropper, poor mm -hmm. white sharecropper and be working in the fields alongside of the African-American sharecroppers. And, and he goes, and that's what we would do. We would sing. And he said, and that's basically what we did. We took the, the black gospel music and the blues and we married it with the white hillbilly music. And that's what made the, the rockabilly of course, which went on to become mm -hmm. rock. And I was also blessed uh, for many years, I came from the same county, Gibson County, Tennessee, as Scotty uh, Scotty Moore. Oh, okay. And always one of my favorites and one of my big influences too. And uh, and then, all oh, this was years ago, several years ago. But I had a chance to meet Scotty Moore and spend some time with him, which was mm -hmm. very impressive. Both both as a guitar player and a musician and music historian, but also because we were both from the same little county in in uh, Northwest Tennessee, and uh -huh. he had precious stories about uh, touring early on with Elvis, as you can imagine. Oh, I would imagine. I imagine. I mean, he uh, he really was important to that sound on those records. And because, uh, yeah. I mean, Elvis wasn't a guitar player, really. I mean, he held a guitar, but it was all Scotty Moore. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, playing guitar and singing, who have been models for you, for your musical style, both as a singer and a guitar player? 
Well, I'm I'm really I'm not the I'm the first to admit that I'm not the guitar slinger. <laughs> you know? Okay. I'm more of the uh not but I do I I'm not really a lead guitar player, but I do play some lead. Okay. Um, but I do uh, but I can, but I'm not the guy that's gonna get out there and try to rip off these Stevie Ray Vaughn licks or anything like that. Okay. Uh, and and the other thing too, I always try to concentrate more on uh, the songwriting and the song in particular than anything else. Although uh, my singing has gotten better, uh, especially over the last few years, I finally quit smoking and uh, that helped my voice out a lot. But I've always considered myself kind of a blues singer songwriter and not the, you know, the, uh, the guitar slinger or this, that, and the other, but some of my biggest influences, people that I wish I could be more like, um, probably toward the top of the list would be uh, Luther Allison uh, mm -hmm. would be right. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to see him uh, in his latter years and was just completely blown away. And also uh, probably one of, the, one of the kings and the one of the kings that had the most influence on me is probably Freddie King, even mm -hmm. more than, uh, than Albert King or B.B. King, although I love B.B. King. Everybody loves B.B. King. Sure. But Freddie King, uh, of course, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, but then that goes back to when you listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan, really that's when you go back to Albert King and, and you know, some of those other old cats that he was, everybody was pulling stuff, you know, from everybody, you know. Sure, sure, sure. That was phenomenal in how he uh, pulled it together. Um, it's just a, uh, those are some of the some of the older cats and then uh, and you know of course hubert sumlin i had a chance to meet him uh several mm -hmm. years before he too and uh he was when you think about the what he was pulling out of his hat back then it was uh, a lot of it was just very very unique mm -hmm. um of course you know the old guys going all the way back to the delta guys but uh, but um i would but one thing about you when you play guitar, and I'm sure you know this too, uh, you're always wanting to learn and you're always wanting to get better and you're mm -hmm. always discovering new people that you can uh, try to learn from. You mm -hmm. know? I wish I, I've worked on it and trying to get better at it, but the uh, the style of like uh, Junior and Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside, you know, which is a, a very uh, percussive style of playing guitar, I really like that. And I've met Kenny Brown a few times who played with, uh, I guess he played with both of them one time or another. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's one of the best there is nowadays. It's still keeping that style alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, uh, the, uh, that North uh, Mississippi style of, uh, you know, it's almost where the, you know, the, the performing over essentially one or maybe two chords but the most important thing is that constant uh, thump that you, you get in that, uh, that sort of repetitive uh, bass note, I guess. I don't yeah, you know that it, you can get hypnotic. on the guitar. Um, yeah. That's, that's the best uh, way to describe it. And it's, it's hypnotic. And that's one thing I really like too, about one of my favorite, you know, younger bands or whatever, I guess if you want to call them that, is that's the black keys. Yes, uh, I really like Dan Auerbach and the Black Keys because it really captured that that uh, that essence. Yes, I agree. I like the Black Keys as well, and Mississippi All Stars, and and uh, get that sound. Yeah. 
Well, I'm uh, curious to know more about uh, the other musicians in your band, 61 South. Tell us, tell us about uh, the guys that you play with. Well, the bands have been the band has been around for 30 years. This is our 30th anniversary this year. Um, I was not an original member. <laughs> you know, people ask me, well, why did you name the band 61 South?" And I tell them, "As I didn't, you know, mm. it started when I joined the band." Um, but it started in 1992. Uh, the only original member left now is the drummer Eric Eicholtz. Uh He's he was an original member. Um, but what's funny is along the way of the original members, gosh, there's like the band. Our band has been on the charts, on the blues charts. Uh, the original harmonica player, who still comes back and plays, and he's recorded every album with us. The harmonica player's uh, J.D. Wilkes who uh, is, he's got a band called the Legendary Shack Shakers. And he, like I said, he still comes back and records with us and every once in a while will play with us, but he's, he's just a phenomenal harmonica player. He mm -hmm. uh, was on Copeland's on Civil War and uh, has recorded with uh, uh, Sturgill Simpson, uh, all these other people. I mean, he's just phenomenal. And mm -hmm. then uh, one of the original guitar players was a guy named Jonas Scott Cowan. He uh, is out of Evansville now, but uh, he has been on the charts with his recordings too, um, which is really good. He's a really good acoustic player, really good electric player too, but and a good and a really good songwriter too. Mm -hmm. um, I never never played in the band with him, uh, and uh, but uh, we've become friends over the years, and we all have that you know that common root there of uh, the band Sixty One South. Probably since about two thousand, so the last twenty two years um the core of the group has been myself playing guitar and then singing and um some songwriting and then the lead guitar player is a guy named sam moore who is originally from cleveland tennessee and uh he yeah he joined it about 2000 about the time we recorded our first cd um and then uh we've gone through a couple of bass players but um on the bass and keyboards too from time to time is a guy named Dan Bell. And he uh, he has been playing in bars, I don't know if he wants me to say, but probably for about 55 years. Mm -hmm. he started in his teens uh, playing in bars all around and still going strong. You know, yeah. Good, he's a good guitar player, he's a good bass player, he's a good keyboard player. So he kind of handles all the, the different angles. And uh, that's been the core of the band for the last 22 years, which if you play in bands very long, you know, it's such a long time to keep a, a band together, no matter what you're oh, doing. <laughs> no, you're not a kidding. You're not a kidding. It's hard to keep a band together. I tell you, I've had so many shifts in personnel just in the last six months. It's enough to, well, it's frustrating, but I've been lucky to be able to find good people to replace others that decided to move on. So I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Well, I'm really curious to know, and I think my audience will be too, after, you know, I, you know, they read your bio, but would you share with my audience about your transition from a career as a television broadcaster and a meteorologist to a blues musician? Well, <laughs> Well, when I see this all goes back to when I got out of college and I was in uh, back then we used to call it mass communications. Right. And um, yeah, so 
I graduated from Middle Tennessee State in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1981 and uh, started out working in radio. And I worked in radio for about a year, year and a half. And then I got hired at a television station in Jackson, Tennessee, WBBJ. And I was going to be a news reporter, but also they wanted, I could ad lib very well. So they said, well, you can ad lib very well. You'll be the backup weather guy. <clears throat> and that was back when we, we didn't have meteorologists. We had weathermen. Weathermen, yes. Weather weather women or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, so I was the backup to the, to the guy who was the, the main weather guy. And then I wasn't there, but about two months and then he left. And so they said, okay, now you're the weatherman. <laughs> but, and I will tell you this, he, he taught me in probably about 15 minutes about how to do the weather on television. It's probably still the best lesson I ever had. Mm-hmm. And then, um, along the way, I, I, um, went back to school and got my meteorology education. I, uh, went from Jackson, Tennessee to Paducah, Kentucky, to mm-hmm. the NBC affiliate. There. I, w- I worked there for almost 20 years and, mm-hmm. uh, and then mm-hmm. I came to I came to a point to where, at that time, my wife she she was sick and having some health problems and and I had to step up and make more money, um, and so I found a higher paying job. But along the way, I've been playing with the band. Oh uh, gosh, for oh man, probably ten or well, probably closer to twelve or fifteen years before I left uh, the TV station in Paducah. Um, started out something fun to do. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I had gotten divorced from my first wife and, uh, you know, pulled the guitar out from under the bed. You know, I'd been playing in garage bands and stuff in college and then got an offer to join 61 South because they needed a guitar player. So I was doing that. And then their front man left after a year or so. And then they kind of, but by de facto made me the front man. And so I went from there and I was still doing the weather. Uh, so I was trying to juggle those two schedules. I was not playing a whole lot, but um, but I always tell people this too that you know you play for the the love of playing and everything, and that's what I've always done. But on the other hand, um, there has been times where uh, that guitar helped me make some mortgage payments and car payments. Mm-hmm. That's what happened when my wife got got uh, started having health problems. Um, I was, I was booking gigs like crazy and then working two jobs, you know, to, to try to keep it together. And, um, so I did that for several years. And then unfortunately she did pass away in 2014. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's one of the reasons there was a big gap between two of our CDs. We did tales from a two lane in 2006 and then did not do another CD until 2016. And that's what it was. I just, you know, I was, I didn't, basically I didn't have enough money to make a CD. Sure. And sure. so everything I was making was going toward, you know, paying the bills and food and this type of thing. Oh, sure. And then after, yeah. And then after she passed away, I said, well, you know, let's, let me try to get back to making and writing some music and stuff. And so that's what I did at that point. Okay. All right. So uh, music was good therapy for you. Yeah, it was. It, you know, it, it keeps you busy, keeps your mind off stuff. Um, yeah, and it never hurts to put a few extra dollars in your pocket either. Yeah, it gives you an outlet and, uh, and does help 
you know, put a couple extra bucks in in my pocket too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been good to me, and uh, and I've had so many good friends, you know, that I've met through music too, as, as I'm sure you have too. It's a uh, mm-hmm. and uh, at times it was a uh, a hobby. At times it's been um, uh, therapeutic. At times it's been something I had to do, you know. Uh, sure. But, but it's all been good, and and it's um, I'm like a lot of the the new, the new uh, professional musician these days. <laughs> yeah, that's what I tell people. There's no, it's, you know, streaming and all this other stuff has pretty much destroyed being a, making a living as a musician, uh, unless you're one of the best, you know, or the yeah. the big seller. Um, because I hear from more and more people now who are great musicians, you know. Oh yeah. They just can't afford to play full time because there's there's fewer places to play. Um, the the compensation is not there. Used to we could make money selling CDs, but I can't really do that anymore. And the, yeah. the streaming um, is just it's you know it's just awful. Yeah. Um, so it's I, I've got some friends that still are full time touring musicians, and I just tell them I say I don't know how you do it. You know. Yeah. 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 It's it's kind of rough. I've talked. I've talked. I'll give an example. I was down in Indianola, Mississippi, uh-huh. um, years ago, and I went to the BB King Museum. Which, if you ever get a chance, everybody needs to go to that to that museum. They've got some really great museums in Mississippi between the BB King Museum and Indianola, and then uh, also the the Granny Museum, and I think that's in Cleveland down there. I mean, it's uh, just it's phenomenal. But anyway, the BB King Museum. One of the the things that they had, they had up framed up on the wall, they had a ledger. And this is when BB was traveling, you know, in his tour bus and everything in the 50s, you know, like 1955 or 56 or something like that. And it showed on there where they had played a gig in uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And they got $500. You know, $500 was a lot of money back then. Mm -hmm. I told somebody, I said, you know, what's sad is if you go to Hopkinsville nowadays and play a gig, guess how much money you're going to get? $500. That's right. (laughs) You're lucky. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, maybe uh, shifting to a to a, a happier set of memories. Uh, what are some of your most memorable gigs? What are ones that really stand out in your memory? Oh, let's see. We did um, probably at the top would be. We opened for Chuck Berry at Blueberry Hill in St. Louis, ah. um, and that was that was a cool gig because it's at that time he used to do a monthly gig at Blueberry Hill in St. Louis, which is a university city, mm-hmm. and uh, it always sold out, packed house, and uh, uh, just a fired up crowd too, fan fan of packed with those fans, and um, and the coolest thing was we rolled in that afternoon. And uh, we're going to do a sound check, and it's in the like an underground part of the Blueberry Hill. It's called the Duck Room. So we go in there and we're set up and we're doing our sound check. And I'm about two or three songs in. There's nobody in there. And about two or three songs in, and then um, out from the back walks Chuck Berry, and he he sits down on the front row right in front of me, and 
props his feet up on the stage and just sat there and listened to us a little bit. Then he took his feet off the stage and he's tapping his foot, you know, while we're playing. And, uh, of course, you know, my eyes were like, mm -hmm. this is crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, after about four or five songs or so, uh, he got up and left. And uh, the owner of the place came up to me as we were, you know, packing up our sound check. And he said, I just want to let you know, he said, you know, Chuck's been doing this monthly show for years. He said, you're the first band that he's ever came out to watch sound check or came out to watch and open for him in all these years came out to watch their sound check and wow. uh and which was pretty that's pretty heavy you know now do i think you know chuck is back there going oh wait that's lou i better go out no i don't think that's <laughs> it uh, i think he just got i think he just got there early and was killing time but it was still um that was pretty cool yeah i'll bet I'll bet to meet, meet an icon that huge. Yeah. And then most of the time I always play like a secondary role, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I'm open for, uh, well, like the Burnsides, uh, Luther Allison, uh, some, and, you know, in latter years, uh, Samantha fish, uh, Eddie nine volt, uh, some of those guys, and uh, Eddie Nine is a really nice guy, by the way, in addition to being a, you know, we wonder about what's the state of blues with the, the younger people, but because uh, he's a young guy, but mm -hmm. uh, he's got it, he's got it in that, that soul and uh, great guitar player, great, great singer, great songwriter. I really became a fan. Uh, I was all, well, I was already a fan, but I became an even bigger fan. Um, but those are always fun. Um but I remember I played one time. We were doing a festival, and um, Little Ed and the Blues Imperials were playing. Mm -hmm. Now, I've opened for Little Ed like two or three times, you know, and uh, but this time they said, "Well, we want the crowd to stick around, or to get there or to stick around or whatever." He said, "Or get there earlier and spend more time there." He said, "So here's what we're going to do: instead of having you open for Little Ed." We're going to have a little Ed open for you. And I'm uh -huh. like, oh, no. And I told the guys, I said, because we knew, we knew what little Ed does, you know. Sure. Well, I told the guys, I said, guys, I said, we're going to have to play our absolute best and we're going to get embarrassed. You know? Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and thank goodness, uh, uh, we did, we played really, really good that day. And I think it kind of threw Ed off to play that early in the day, you know. And uh, so I'm looking at some of the postings later on, and and uh, and they were very complimentary to us, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Little Ed, I mean, Little Ed's just one of the best, you know. Sure. So anytime we can just not embarrass ourselves by playing around some of these kind of guys, you know, guys that I really look up to, you know, that's good. But uh, – Gosh, I played around. I played in Clarksdale many times, both with the band and uh, solo. Mm -hmm. but what, at least two or three of those times, we were joined by uh, the son of one of my other big mentors, which was uh, Snooky Pryor. Mm -hmm. And Rip Lee Pryor would come out and play with us. And, well, you talked about a chip off the old block. He's mm -hmm. uh, 
he's a good harmonica player and he's when he sings and everything he sounds like him and he's getting out he even looks like him and uh he's he's one of my best friends in music i really love uh love him to death and uh and keep him in my prayers a lot lately because he's had some health struggles as of late but um but yeah those are always fun but you know what's crazy is uh craig i've i've done so many of these shows i can't i can't remember all of them i'm sure there's other ones that probably should stand out um i know at uh, i played last year on the rhythm legendary rhythm and blues cruise and uh, when I got done, I think it was like the next day, I ran into uh, Johnny Rawls. At uh, we were both there to see Taj Mahal, and uh, and I love Johnny Rawls. And I said, I like that old Southern soul too. I was I was actually good friends with uh, 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 Super Wolf down in Jackson, who was uh, Denise LaSalle's husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Denise two or three times, but I was always good friends with Super Wolf, James Wolf. And uh, so I love the Southern Soul. I really love Denise LaSalle. We, my, my late wife and I used to go to these, all these Southern Soul reviews down in Tunica, which uh, if you've ever been to one of those, they're just fantastic. It would be like about a four or five hour marathon with, uh, you would have male waiters and then uh, Bobby Rush and Denise LaSalle and Shirley Shirley Brown and uh, the Barkays and uh, all of these cats, you know, and they were so much fun. But anyway, so I love Johnny Rawls, and I'm there to see Taj Mahal, and there's Johnny Rawls right in front of me, and uh, I said, I said, hey, hey, Johnny, you know, can I uh, can I get my picture made with you? You know, he turned around, looked me up and down, and he goes, oh, well, I remember you from last night. He said, I really dig that groove you got going on. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I'm like me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. But, well, that's uh, that's a, those are some great experiences. Let me tell you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It goes on and on. You know. You sure. Yeah. You here, so you know how that how it goes. Well, you're absolutely right. What you said earlier, and that is that uh, you know through music you meet a lot of great people. And I and I think. A lot of make a lot of precious memories. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Lou, let's talk about your most uh, recent album, Deja Hoodoo. Uh, how has this album differed from your earlier efforts? Well, um, it's a compilation. Okay. Um, we did the four studio albums and I did a Christmas album. Um, but with Deja Hoodoo, um, the last two studio albums that we did, Rain and Palestine Blues, got uh, a lot of airplay all over the world. And But the first two really did not. The only big outlet that ever picked, played the first two very much were uh, XM, Bluesville oh. Channel on XM mm-hmm. Radio. And, and, uh, and, and which was great, you know, what with Waffle House, Waffle House Woman was the big song they played. They played Waffle House Woman and I've Been Cheated Off the Two Tales from the Tulane. And it was on their uh, top blues list all summer long uh, and uh, and really did well. In fact, I, I still see Bill Wax every now and then, who was the program director at the time. And in fact, I saw him on the on the Rhythm and Blues cruise and I, and I tell him, I said, 
I said, Bill, you saved my house. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, that was when my wife got sick and she couldn't work. And I had these house payments that I had to make. And, and uh, I started getting these royalty checks, you know, from, uh, from BMI because of what he was playing us on XM. Mm-hmm. And that really saved my house. And, uh, and of course, you know, he's, he's so modest and everything. Oh, no, that was just the great songs that, that connected with the listeners and da-da-da-da-da. And I said, well, that may be true, but if you hadn't done that, you know, if you hadn't played them, then. Right. Those. You know, uh, and, uh, but yeah, I wanted, so I wanted something that would kind of encapsulate our best over the 30 years. And then also, we always did on every album, we always did one or two covers. I wanted something that would be just stuff that, that I had written. And so that's what we did on this one as well, because the four albums are very, distinctly different um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. state line blues is very traditional a little bit of southern rock thrown in um and then tales from a two-lane a little bit like that but maybe a little bit more sophisticated uh rain kind of progressed even more along those lines uh to be more progressive but it had some a wide variety of styles as well and then palestine blues was uh, three piece, very stark. Um, I mean, dealing with a lot of different themes from a time like when I lost my job, a time when, uh, you know, some friends of mine were having substance abuse problems, uh, people with, you know, alcoholism, uh, suicide, um, some very dark themes on uh, Palestine blues. And, um, but it was stuff that that I felt, you know, I, I wanted to get out of my system, you know, that I wanted sure. to talk about. Today. And so that's what we did. And like I said, that was just basically recorded three piece myself, guitar. I mean, myself, bass and drum. Uh, I played all the lead guitar on that one. And then, of course, I brought in J.D. to do some harmonica on some stuff, too. But mm-hmm. uh, I wanted something to kind of bring all of those different elements kind of all together. And it'll probably be the last uh, CD slash album that I do uh, as far as a physical copy um, Mm -hmm. because it's just probably my on my level. um, It's just not economically feasible. Sure, sure. Now I'm still writing music. I back. I've got really good. I'm ready to record, but they will probably. I'll probably put them out digitally. Uh, but the mm-hmm. digital singles, the days of the the album, I think, are gone. With the exception of, I call it the you know the big the big boys and girls. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, I no, I hear you, and and it's uh, you know, and then there's a certain niche uh, of collectors who like to collect music on vinyl and so on. But I think you're right. I think digital and streaming is is kind of the way that in general more more and more people are are consuming music that way yeah and uh, uh so forth I, yeah one of the um so cheryl crow who's from not too far from where i live over in the boot hill in uh in missouri um i think she even said that she was not going to put out any more albums yeah and, uh, she may put stuff out which is odd because i actually met Cheryl Crow, this is like years ago, 
when mm-hmm. her uh, first album was coming out. At that time, they had me doing some entertainment reporting in addition to doing the weather. And mm-hmm. uh, the interview with Cheryl, she was in Nashville. That the first album that that she put out that was the the big mega Grammy winner that Tuesday Night Music Club or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had just come out. So sort of it, and she was opening for Crowded House at a place in Nashville, and they sent me down there to interview Cheryl, and I'm talking to her, and I said, now you're from Kennett, right? And uh, she said, yeah. And I said, that's crazy. I said, my best friend from college uh, married a girl from Kennett. And she said, well, who's that? And I said, you know, so-and-so. She said, so-and-so? And I went, yeah. She goes, she was my best friend in high school. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> that's a small world. But, yeah. but it, I really did like Cheryl because we just uh, – She's just a guitar brat. So we were just talking mm-hmm. about guitars and guitars and guitars for a long time after the interview. Uh, yeah. And I always thought highly of her. But, uh, but yeah, it is, it's a small world. You know? It is. Well, do you think that these uh, future recording projects that you're, you're talking about, you'll probably just release like a, a single song or are you, are you maybe leaning more towards grouping a bunch of songs together in maybe an album type format, even though you're going to release it uh, digitally. Yeah, that's, I mean, I could probably do that. Uh, it would probably be like um, more like an EP. Okay. Type, yeah. About three, three, four, five songs, something okay. like that. Okay. Do you yeah, think I that, would like to do. Is that something you think might be out within the next year? Oh, I hope so. Okay, I good. Get, I ain't getting any younger. I hear you. Yeah, today's the first day of the rest of our lives, isn't it? And and you uh, you, yep. you were talking about that you've got a lot of new songs written, so I assume you write music fairly regularly. Uh, I try to. Um, I try to as much as I can, but it's, it's uh, I guess I'm like the, come from the, uh, the Keith Richards School of Songwriting uh, you know, he used to always take keep a tape recorder by his bed, and because a lot of times, you know, you're you're laying there about half asleep, and then you'll get the inspiration, yep. something will pop in your head. And uh, I think with Keith, he said, "I would write it down immediately," you know, because if you don't, it's it'll be gone. You know, the next right. day it'll be gone. Right, right. So, so these days, of course, I've got my I've got my phone mm-hmm. uh, on my nightstand, and when I think of something or think of a riff or something like that then i will uh, write it out sometimes i will uh hum the melody into the phone you know on the mm-hmm. on a, i got a little recording app and uh and then i can come back to it later of course sometimes sure. i'll come back to it and i go well this makes absolutely no sense at all you know <laughs> then sometimes i'll come back and go yeah well that's pretty that's pretty good yeah uh-huh well, you mentioned also earlier that you were responding to uh, a lot of uh, kind of personal problems that friends of yours were having. But t- is that typically what inspires you to write what you observe in others? Well, not only in others, but in myself, too. Uh, okay. Uh, first album, um, which some people call the divorce album, um, I got divorced from my first wife, and uh, a lot of the songs were written that way and there was a song called betcha on that one and it's on deja hoodoo as well and uh, what it was is that um 
my first wife started working on a casino boat as a as a dealer and uh and so she wound up taking up with another dealer and then that's the reason that we got divorced and everything and so mm-hmm. i wrote the with a lot of uh you know casino and gambling kind of uh uh inferences and metaphors mixed in and uh you know but all i say like in retrospect you know i said you know if i ever run into that guy i'm gonna shake his hand and buy him a beer <laughs> <laughs> i said he uh, saved me he saved me from a lifetime of misery oh so, my goodness uh, oh there you go it all uh, it you know, so many times everything works out for the best. But sure, sure. That, I, I actually met my uh, my second wife, uh-huh. and uh, was just, you know she was just awesome, and uh, uh, and I would have never, obviously, I would have never experienced that if I had not, you know, my first marriage had not disintegrated. You know, so that was everything. Always, you know, the good lords always took a for some reason has watched out for me. And that was just another case where he did. Oh, good, good. Well, it, in regard to your creative process, what what most often comes to mind first when you write a song? Is it a melodic idea? Do you hear a melody in your head or is it a rhythmic idea? Or do you maybe hear a vamp or a set of chord changes? Or is it a mood or an image? Or do you just think of some lyrics? How does a song usually come to you first? It, um, I think it's all of those things. Okay. Uh, at one time, I've had some songs where um, I, it was a riff, you know. I, I had a good riff that I'd stumbled upon when I was doodling. And uh, I said, you know, oh, that's a good riff. I should, you know, write something around this. I've had other times where I had um, um, some lines that um, I thought were just, these are just really good lines. Um, and then I would build around that. On the first album, I had a song called State Line Blues, mm-hmm. which uh, had, had the, the line in there was, uh, state of mind is a state of mind. You know, like a state of mind is a state of, of mind. You know, mm-hmm. a couple of lines there, and um, and so that got some airplay on XM and everything. And so later on, I'm playing at a festival. This girl comes up to me. She says, "I'm going to show you something." And I said, "Well, what's that?" And she pulls up her pants leg, and she's got that tattooed on her leg. I'll be dying. She said, "State of mind, state of mind." She said, "What do you think about that?" I said, "I don't even like the song that much." <laughs> <laughs> But I'm humbled, you know, I'm humbled. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, it's, that's something else. That's something. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about, uh, you, know, you know, putting covers on your recordings. If you cover an already recorded or performed song, what draws you to that song to make you want to perform it? How well I do it. How well uh, you do it. Okay. Well, because um, obviously there's some stuff I can't do. Um but we had a cover that we did of uh, John Hyatt's "Feels Like Rain." Mm-hmm. On, it was on it was on the album "Rain," in fact, and uh, um, we had been playing it for years live. And mm-hmm. then uh, when we went, we said, "Now let's let's uh, let's do this cover." And so we put that one on there, and uh, 
we got really good reviews afterwards. In fact, some people said they go, you know, believe it or not, I like this version better than John Hyatt's version, mm -hmm. which is the great. But uh, and I did another cover on there uh, on the same album of uh, uh, one of my favorite songwriters, Alan Toussaint, mm -hmm. and we a cover of uh, of uh, uh, oh what is that song? One of his it was a big hit for Irma Thomas back in 1962, and uh, uh, was it the name of it? Rain. I don't know something like feel not feels like rain, but it's something it's something along like I'm getting older. I can't remember stuff anymore. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But it was uh, I really liked that one, and I had seen. Of course, I had heard um, Luann Barton do that song, mm -hmm. and I heard uh, um, Luann Barton do the song. I'd heard Irma Thomas do the song. I'd heard others do the song, but I I was watching uh alan toussaint and uh, on some tv special or concert or something and then he did it just himself at the piano and um i was really struck by it i said you know what i like this version better than all of the others and so at that point um i decided to, to record it and uh do it with just myself and the piano and uh, and I really liked the way that one turned out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm no, trying no. not to. Uh, oh, the name of it, it's Rainy. That's the name of it. It's Rainy. And because uh, I try not to do uh, too many covers. And because that goes back to when I did the first ever CD, uh, I was getting ready to record a CD. And um, I was going to do, I wanted to get into some bigger festivals, you know. Notice mm -hmm. you got product, you know. So. And they can listen to you and see what you sound like and stuff. So we were going to do a CD of nothing but covers. Mm -hmm. you know, just some of stuff like that. Um, anyway, so I was getting ready to do that. And I was talking to the, to the president of the uh, Music City Blues Society in Nashville. And I was telling him about that. And he stopped me and he said, he said, let me tell you something. He said, do as many originals as you can. Don't do a bunch of covers. Do as many originals as you can. And at that point, it was funny, Craig, because at that point, I'd never written a single song, I don't think. Maybe mm -hmm. like one. And uh, so I said, well, okay, I'll give it a try. And uh, and sure enough, things started coming together. And uh, as it turned out, I was a better songwriter than, than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great to know. Uh, yeah, it's all, then the albums would have like you know, 10 to 12 songs on each of them, maybe like one or two covers, until Deja Hoodoo, which is all originals, you know. Sure, sure. But uh, it was, uh, uh, I was, it's one of those things that, a talent that I really didn't know I had until mm -hmm. I kind of tried it. And, uh, and then I was surprised, you know, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Well, I, I'm going to ask you a question. I think I already know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going to answer ask it anyway. Uh, if you're covering a well-known blues song that has a long-standing history, do you feel an obligation to perform the song in a similar manner to the artist who originally performed and or recorded it? Or do you feel an obligation to make it your own by doing it in a unique and new way? 
Well, I try to do it on the, you know, uh, my way, my unique and original way, uh, as only I can. I say as only I can. And part of the reason for that is because I can't, I can't do it as good as they did. <laughs> well, I mean, except, except you did John Hyatt one better from your, what you're telling me. That's good. Well, that, yeah, but that, I mean, that we, and, and you know how it is, you play songs and over time, uh, even when you're doing covers, a lot of times over time, they'll kind of morph a little bit, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that was the case with that one. And by the time we recorded it, we'd been playing it for like, gosh five or six years okay so i'm sure it had morphed a little bit along the way but i'll tell you something funny about about the songs morphing um i said i was good friends with carl perkins when i lived in jackson and uh i was talking to him one time what was one of my favorite things to do he had a telethon he had these uh uh centers that were named after him that were for the prevention of child abuse they were all throughout west tennessee we did a telethon every year Mm-hmm. And my favorite part of the film, he's sitting backstage and listening to Carl tell stories, you know. Sure. And, uh, but I was talking to him about this, that, and the other. And then he was telling me about he was playing a, a BBC special in, uh, in England that they were recording, and he was going to be playing with Dave Edmonds. And so he starts out playing uh, uh, Honey Don't or whatever like that, you know, something. And, uh, Dave Edmonds stopped him and he said, said, hold on. He said, you're playing that wrong. And Carl says, he goes, my first thought was, boy, what are you talking about? I wrote that song. That's, you know, this is my song. I, don't be telling me. He said, but you know what? He said, I stopped and thought about it. And you know what? He goes, that boy was right. <laughs> he said, <laughs> I had, it, it had changed a little bit over the, all the years, you know, when I'm playing it. Whereas he had learned from the original recording. And so he knew mm-hmm. more about how that song goes than me. Sure. Sure. And, sure. uh, and that's, that's true all the covers, but, but part of me with the covers was that, um, I mean, I can't sing like BB King and I can't, right. or like Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, you know, I can't, I can't do that stuff. So why even try, you know, right. take it in a, another direction and play, play my, I don't want to say interpretation, but, but my, more of my style, you mm-hmm. know, with that way, you know, you want it to be recognizable, sure. but I off a, you know, how am I going to improve upon, uh, you know, Freddie King's, you know, going down or something like that. Sure. Uh, sure. Well, there have been some rare occurrences, I think when uh, a cover version has maybe been better than the original. Now, that, that's just in my personal opinion. I will always take Joe Cocker's version oh, yeah. of A Little Help for My Friends over the Beatles original. I mean, there's just something special I'm about sure Joe Cocker's version. But uh, I think you're right. No, you know, you're not going to imitate or be exactly the same thing. And And I think you bring up another excellent point about artists that the lay audience doesn't always remember and that is a recording only freezes in time the way that that artist did that song on that particular date you know what i mean and that uh we do kind of evolve and change and grow the way that we perform songs uh or tunes so that you know maybe 10 20 years down the line would they might be playing it different even though they wrote it just like the example that you gave uh, yeah. Lou, and, uh, oh, go ahead. And you have 
how bad, can you imagine how bad it would have been for Joe Cocker to try to do, uh, get by the little help of my friends the way the Beatles did it instead of doing it the way that he did it. Exactly. Yeah. He wouldn't, it wouldn't have been nearly as successful. He had to have that incredible gospel back, back and, you know, sound backing him up and that, yeah, you're right. It was a, it was a real excellent, you know, departure. Uh, Lou, tell us about uh, uh, some live shows you've got coming up. Oh gosh. I've, I've been going pretty hard all summer. Um, that's the deal. Uh, I'm taking a couple of weeks off now. Um, and I, and I, quite honestly, I need them because I'm just, I'm pretty much exhausted right now because, because you know, when you, when you're a, a weekend warrior, uh, like me and like more and more of us are, um, it's pretty much like working seven days a week, you know? Sure it is. I'm playing and I'm playing a lot more solo, solo acoustic and solo electric. Uh, probably probably about two thirds of my shows now are solo, but uh, coming up, uh, let's see, the twenty seventh, I'll be playing in downtown Paducah solo. The next mm -hmm. afternoon at uh, 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 we call a dockside bar and grill at Catawba, Kentucky. Let's see, then kind of the same thing. Both the next the next twos will be both uh, solo. September third downtown Paducah again, September 8th at Catawba. That'll be a Thursday night. Uh, Tennessee Soybean Festival, September the 10th in Martin, Tennessee. Okay. Barbecue on the River, September 23rd, which is a lot of fun. It's in Paducah. It's a big barbecue festival, that type of thing. And uh, then downtown Paducah for the Farmer's Market. I always love playing the Farmer's Market. It's one of the, the funnest, most fun things to play, believe it or not. No, and I know then, what you mean. I've played farmer's markets. Then I've got a college bar, October the 1st, the Hawk's Nest in Martin, Tennessee, which is, you know what the difference is between the the the, the dockside marinas and the college bars? The dockside marinas, we play like from 6 to 10 or from 1 to 5. Mm -hmm. The college bar, you don't start until 10 o'clock and you play till 2. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, and then I'm going to probably be doing playing in some of the jams once again this year on the Legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise, uh, October 29th through November the 5th, and uh, then basically hitting the college bars again. But although we're, get, we're getting ready to start booking some more for the second half of the year. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Hey, we're, I mean, we're the, we're the quintessential bar band, man. We, well, it sounds we, like if, if we could make, it, make, make our way down – we all could make our way down to uh, Paducah and uh, some of the surrounding areas. We certainly could find plenty of opportunities to hear you. So that's, uh, that's oh, yeah, great. You'll have, you'll have good Wonderful. I'll Wonderful. Make, I'll make sure you have a good time. Awesome. Well, Lou, I only have a couple more questions to ask you. One is if you could perform with any artist you have never performed with living or dead, who would that artist be and why? Oh, wow. Gosh. Yeah, I guess it would probably be Luther Allison, I guess, because I'm okay. one of my I always felt like he, he I, I think he is the most underrated um, blues artist that there is. Um, there's mm -hmm. so many more, more accolades than him, but when you, 
when you listen to him and watch him, you can go back and look at some of the old YouTube videos and everything. Boy, he was just so powerful. Sure, sure. All right, well, Luther Allison, and uh, we'll we'll get more familiar. But Lou, I want to finish up with: uh, Is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? No, I think I think you pretty much you pretty much covered it all. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I I try to be as thorough as I could be, and and uh, and uh, try to you know get into uh, as much about my guests as possible and but i always ask that last question because i know i'm not perfect and i want to make sure that uh, the guest is happy and been able to, to share with us whatever we need to know about them so uh, if you don't have anything to add that's fine i'll take that as a compliment well <laughs> that thing else, else i guess is that uh you know, how long I'm going to keep on doing it. And the answer is simple. This is as long as I can. Yeah. Like I tell people, I will continue to play trumpet and conduct until they pry my horn from my cold, dead fingers. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, Lou, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I'm sure glad to hear that you're busy and that you're doing what you love to do. And all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It's a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is Martha Mook. Martha Mook, acclaimed for her electrifying performances and compositions, is a pioneering electric violist composer, highly regarded for her artistry, musical advocacy, and innovative educational programs. She transcends musical boundaries, enhancing classical training with extended techniques, technology, and improvisation. A Yamaha artist and Eventide's first artist-in-residence, Mook is a leading clinician on electric and multi-style string playing. She has performed with Barbara Streisand, David Bowie, Philip Glass, Elton John, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Lori Anderson, Andrea Bocelli, Star Wars in Concert, and Tony Bennett, among others. She is founder and artistic director of the Scorchio Quartet, which was featured on David Bowie's uh, CD, Heathen which performs as resident quartet in the Tibet House Benefit Concerts at Carnegie Hall, produced by Philip Glass. Mook has received awards from ASCAP, Meet the Composer, Arts International and Fellowships at the McDowell Colony. She has been commissioned by Symphony Space, Arizona State University, Tribeca, New Music Festival, Ridgewood Concert Band, University of St. Thomas, the Augusto Foundation of Prague, Czechoslovakia, Percussion Plus Project, Musicians Accord, SEM Ensemble, Special Music School High School, Kingwood Oxford School, and others. She has created musical arrangements 
for Phoebe Bridges, Bridgers, excuse me, Debbie Harry, Carly Simon, Sturgill Simpson, Iggy Pop, Sharon Jones, and Tibetan musicians Tenzin Shugail and Che Ung. Her catalog of works includes solo, chamber, symphonic band and orchestra, as well as multimedia, film, theater, and ballet scores. Her genre-defined recordings include recent collaboration with David Rothenberg, Buzz, Music in Harmony with Nature, Inharmonic Vision, Boeing's Cafe Mars, and No Ordinary Window with Grammy-winning producer Cynthia Daniels. In demand for her innovative educational programs, MOOC regularly presents clinics and workshops at national and regional conferences. She is a recipient of the 2013 American String Teachers Association Kudos Award for helping extend the boundaries in string music and education. Mook has collaborated with beatboxing legend Rozelle on their critically acclaimed Beats Per Revolution. Visual artist Nalini Milani, the Joan Miro Prize winner, and software artist Scott Draves. She has been featured at Pop Tech and on Gear Club podcast. Her film scoring credits include collaborations with filmmaker and MTV world creator Nusrat Durrani. Mook received the prestigious ASCAP Concert Music Award for creating and producing ASCAP's new music showcase, Through the Walls, featuring boundary-defined composers and performers. She is a governor of the New York chapter of the Recording Academy and serves on the executive committee of the Composer Diversity Project and Advisory Board of Composers Now. Mook has developed and directs the cutting edge multi-style strings program at New Jersey City University. The All Music Guide lists two albums under Mook's name, No Ordinary Window and In Harmonic Vision. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of the official video for Mook's piece, Ordinary Window, performed by the composer. Well, that's a wrap on episode number 107. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be a wonderful discussion with upstate New York singer, songwriter, and leader of the folk rock band Warden and Company, Seth Warden. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based jazz drummer Donald Edwards, big band composer, arranger, leader, and faculty member at the Berklee College of Music, Stephen Feifke, 
New York City-based multi-woodwind specialist and composer and bandleader Ben Kono, and Chicago-based blues guitarist, singer-songwriter, and bandleader Nick Moss. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.